Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And if any of you are thinking, Matthew 27, that means we're getting close to being done. There's 28 chapters in Matthew. Some of you have been around our church long enough to know that we started this series like three years ago, and we haven't been going every week through Matthew for the last three years. We've taken a few breaks, but it's been a long journey through the gospel according to Matthew, and maybe you're thinking, oh wow, we're almost at the end, but not in a sense of like, we want this to hurry up and finish, but rather in a sense of, we've accomplished something as a church. And so what I want to do today is I want to, as we often do, read the text of Scripture, give you a big idea, and explain how this applies to our life and how the gospel transforms everything. But I do want to give a quick caveat to give credit where credit's due. Three years ago, I was at Trinity International Divinity School, a school up in Deerfield, where John Pay, one of our members, is currently a student. And anyway, I was there for a lecture during the celebration of the 500-year Reformation, and an excellent lecture was given by Pastor the Reverend Dr. Kevin DeYoung on guilt and why the gospel is so needed for guilt. And I want to share some snippets kind of throughout the message. So I'm not going to quote it every time, but I'm just letting you know that um, credit where credit's due. Kevin DeYoung gave an excellent talk on this, and if you'd like to hear it, I'll send you the link sometime. But he begins this talk with an article by a, I think, non-Christian professor from the University of Oklahoma who wrote an article called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And here's how the article begins. Those of us who are living in the developed countries of the Western Hemisphere, we find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in the modern life. If anything, the word persistence is understating this matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from its discourse and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, it has become ever more elusive. Now, to summarize and to get the point of the article, the author goes on to say that what Nietzsche and Freud were saying ended up proving itself to be dead wrong. Nietzsche and Freud predicted that the more modern and advanced that we became as a civilization, then this would mean that we would not need God and that therefore we would not feel guilty anymore. The point of this article is to say that the quote-unquote death of God in society does not eradicate guilt. Freud said that guilt was only a subjective emotional pathology. It's just something that we kind of tell ourselves because of that big, mean, angry God. But here we are, well into the 21st century. And as the article goes on to say and argue, most of us have a nagging sense that we are not doing enough and that even what we are doing is not good enough. 
In this massively connected world where we can go and fly anywhere, phone anywhere, get the news from anywhere, and see pictures from anywhere, we cannot help but feel weighed down by the suffering in the world on a global scale. And now, with this increased capability comes increased culpability. It used to be that we were largely ignorant of the troubles outside of our own neighborhood. But now we're aware of the troubles that beset billions of people on the planet. If there's a hurricane, an earthquake, or a homicide, a traffic accident, a shooting spree, an act of terrorism, all of us hear about it. And as the schoolhouse rock taught us, this knowledge is power. And we feel like, well, there's more that we can do. We could give another dollar, send another teddy bear, purchase another goat. And this cycle of obligation and the circle that it creates is limitless. Think of all the areas in your contemporary life where we face an increasing sense of judgment and guilt. Let me give you one. Food. Until fairly recently, the Western world has had lots of rules about sexuality, but very few rules about food, especially when you compare broader cultural norms throughout history. Today, the situation has reversed. We keep track of calories. We stay away from trans fat and MSG. Big cities want to ban big gulps. Lunch lines are getting rid of standard things like pizza and french fries in favor of vegetable sticks and low-fat yogurt. And it's not just a matter of eating healthy and losing weight. Anyone who ever thinks that we live in an age of moral relativism has not tried to feed your neighborhood kids a sugary cereal. There are some young people today who feel less shame by being caught with pornography than being caught at McDonald's. Your food choices face constant scrutiny from our friends, free rangers, foodies, and there's a good reason to consider what we eat and how we treat our body, but there is no question that many of us are feeling a constant sense of guilt about this. And this is not even to mention all of the things that we hear about in regards to isms and phobias. We are guilty of colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, racism, sexism, Islamophobia, homophobia, and the rest. Again, there's no doubt that some of these concerns are worth thinking about and discussing. But the fact remains that you are often told that you are bad and that you've been bad. And in fact, it's a measure of the social standing in many circles to see who can say the loudest how bad the sins of the West are. If we take this seriously, what everyone is telling us, we become compromised people with deeply complicit feelings of guilt, not just in our own life, but through the centuries. And keep this in mind, this sort of indictment is coming often from those people who completely reject any notion of sin or salvation. In other words, the very same culture that says that it does not believe in sin or total depravity, as we talked about yesterday in our class, is the same culture that is awash in statements of universal corruption and moral culpability. And the area that we haven't even mentioned that people feel the most guilt, that many of you in this room have all the time, 
A group of people who roam around this planet with a never-ending, debilitating, nearly ubiquitous sense that they are doing nothing right. These people are called parents. The immense social pressure to feed your kids the right food, get them to the right doctor, put them in the right school, whether inside or outside of the home. Moms especially can feel as though they have too many kids, not enough kids, or they should nurse their children, they should use formula, they should put their kids on their stomachs when they're sleeping, they should never think about putting a baby on their stomach in any circumstance whatsoever, or they should put their kids to bed when they're crying, nor should they ever let their kids cry themselves to sleep. Parents feel pressure to get their kids to piano lessons by the age of three, soccer practice by the age of four, watercolor painting at five, and this pressure, some of it self-imposed, but many of it is because of the air we breathe. And if you think that I'm exaggerating, it's because you've not been a parent in the age of Facebook. In short, we are a people who are loaded with massive amounts of guilt. Freud and Nietzsche were dead wrong. Sometimes we are conscious of this guilt, but more often than not, it becomes just this low-level sense. I'm just not doing enough. There must be more that we can do to help people on the planet. And that the problems in our world, they must be part of our fault. And we're not living up to these expectations. So the summary of the article goes like this. We live in a world that carries an enormous growing burden of guilt, yearning, demanding to be freed from it. Indeed, it is impossible for us to exaggerate how many deeds of the average man or woman could be traced back to that powerful, inextinguishable need of human beings who want to feel justified, to feel themselves right with the world. That I think is a good introduction for our passage in Matthew chapter 27. How can we feel right, not just with the world, but with God, with all of the enormous growing guilt that accumulates every day? Let's read this story, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 27. I'm also going to skip down at one point and read Another section in Matthew 24, because I want us to see that blood is a key theme in Matthew chapter 27. Everyone in this story, as you're going to see, is trying to escape the responsibility of shedding the innocent blood of Jesus. But what you're going to see is that the blood of Jesus clings to everyone and everything that touches him. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 1. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And Judas says this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. 
So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was filled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed to me. Drop down to verse 24. Notice the blood theme continue. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Do you realize that as we read Matthew 27, it is showing direct prophetic fruition of these words from Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 34 and following. Therefore, Jesus says to the prophets in the temple, I am going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All of these things, the guilt of shedding innocent blood. Our passage that I just finished reading ends with them shouting, our, let his blood be on us and all of our children. This generation and subsequent generations are saying, yep, the blood is on us. So in other words, everyone is feeling the contamination of the innocent blood of Jesus. Judas wants to get rid of the money because he bought it with the blood of Jesus. The Jewish leaders do not want that money in their temple because it's blood money. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, and so he tries to literally say, I wash my hands of this blood. And so he tries. But everyone wants to scrape off this blood, and it seems to come back again and again, even to the generation that Jesus just predicted. So big idea before moving on any further with any other explanations. What's this sermon about? What's this passage of scripture about? And in a short sentence, it would be only the blood of Jesus can wash off the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus can wash off the blood of Jesus. Very practically for you and for me, how can you and I escape those feelings of guilt that we were talking about at the beginning of this message? How can we wash off the deep stain of the blood on our hands? So many of us are not too different from Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. The guilt of our sin is inescapable, and you cannot make yourself clean. And so, Lady Macbeth, as she does in that play, says these words to illustrate it beautifully. Out, you damned spot, I say. Who would have thought that the old man would have shed so much blood in him? What will these hands ever be?
be cleaned? Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, 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 out, you damned spot. This is what I mean by the inescapable guilt of the blood of Jesus. We cannot make ourselves clean. And many of us are walking around this earth day after day, just like Lady Macbeth. How can I deal with this blood and this guilt? So what we're going to see in this passage of scripture is that only until we come to Jesus and use his shed blood can we ever cleanse ourselves of the guilt and our participation in the blood of Jesus. First, I want us to look at the way that Judas, by feeling sorry for himself, cannot wash off the blood of Jesus. So first, only Jesus can wash off the blood of Jesus. Feeling sorry for yourself? That will not do it. The difference that we see between Peter and Judas, similar to what we saw last week, Matthew, masterful storyteller, is putting this story right here on the heels of Peter's denial so that you could see a contrast and comparison between one man who utterly fails Jesus and another man who utterly fails Jesus, but the outcome of their lives could not be any more different. There's so many similarities between the two. They both do horrible things. Peter denies Jesus three times, and at the very end of it, he curses Jesus. Like, this is not good. And look at the very end of Matthew chapter 26, verse 75. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. If you look at verse 3 of chapter 27, then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, and then the phrase, he changed his mind, fine translation, but another way to say the same thing is that he felt regret, or some translations will say remorse. Both Peter and Judas, we could say, felt bad, sad for the thing that they had done. And so this is why we brought up 2 Corinthians 7 earlier in the service. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that there's two kinds of grief, two kinds of sadness. For a godly grief will produce true repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. And there's a worldly grief that produces death. If Peter and Judas aren't the best illustration of 2 Corinthians 7.10, I don't know what else would be. So what is it? What's the difference between a godly grief and a worldly grief? What's the difference between Peter and Judas? What leads to true salvation and what produces death, even suicide? Well, godly grief, in short, is a feeling sorry and remorseful for sinning against God. Worldly grief just feels sorry for yourself. The outward manifestation of your sorrow could be the exact same for both of these kinds of grief. But the difference is everything. It is ultimately our sinning against God that has to be at the heart of our repentance. This is what David says as he confesses. We read this last week, actually, in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned, even though he murdered someone and committed adultery. Against you and you only have I sinned needs to be at the very heart of our repentance. This is why as I'm counseling people, I'm regularly telling them we need a God-centered kind of transformation. Not just a feeling sorry for ourselves and some true, a few tips and techniques for how to manage our behavior. We need to be changed from our heart and our theology about God needs to be transformed. We have today in the modern world a psychological understanding of guilt. 
And therefore, it's become a very therapeutic idea of forgiveness. Guilt is seen as very subjective and just part of your conscience. It may not be what we are, but it's how we feel would be the way to summarize the modern notion of guilt. Therefore, the solution that's being offered is emotional acceptance and learning how to live with yourself. But if there's no God to sin against, then there's no God that will ever say, I forgive you. This is the heart of true repentance. If you've sinned against God, then that God has the ability to forgive you. But if you've just sinned against the universe, well, what is the universe going to do to communicate to you pardon and forgiveness? It doesn't, as we saw in our introduction. Without personal pardon from a personally offended God, it is hard to know how anyone will ever have lasting peace. This is why the message of the world that you are good deep down inside is so radically misinformed. We're told we need to move on and just forgive yourself. But for all of us who are willing to be honest with ourselves and our failures for just a second knows this is nonsense. How many people do you know or how many times in your life have you felt despair? And when you think about that despair, how often does it linger because you have done away with God? If God is big enough to judge us and condemn us, then he's also big enough to forgive us. We have all of the self-talk that you could do, all of the therapeutic kind of nonsense to some degree for dealing with the wrongs that we have committed. That's what the world has to offer us. But it's really the worst of all possibilities. Because not only do you have abiding sense of guilt, but the world offers no coherent plan for redemption and salvation. This is the worldly grief that leads to death, and at times, literally, the death of suicide. My brother sent a message to our family recently with an article that he was summarizing where it said, in October of last year, 2019, there were 879 women who had killed themselves. Last year, meaning 2020. Let me get the facts right. In October of last year, meaning 2020, during the COVID pandemic, 879 women have killed themselves. This number is 70% higher than the same month a year ago in 2019. 70% higher from one year to the next. Then in the article, they compared the total number of suicides by both men and women in October, which was a little over 2,000, with the total number of deaths from the coronavirus in Japan at 2,087. More people being killed by suicide than the amount of people that were killed in Japan by coronavirus. Now, the reason why some people have highlighted this in Japan is because Japan has fewer strict lockdowns, relatively few COVID deaths, and what they're saying is, why is it where COVID is much worse in other countries and, and locations where the pandemic is much worse, relatively few COVID deaths are happening in Japan, but even more people are dying from suicide the article then suggests that even though there might be various factors and it's hard to, you know, account for everything, the general increase in suicide amongst women in 2020 is probably because of the effects 
that the social distancing and COVID-19 has had on our everyday circumstances. So this is what my brother said after he linked the article. And I thought this, was, this is a good application in light of hearing about a worldly grief that leads to death, literally the death of suicide. How will we be conduits of hope for the people around us? How can we reach out to our fellow church members and neighbors to be a refuge for people who are in need and ensure that despite that all of the disruption that has gone on in our lives, we will make an effort to check in on those that we know who are close to us? How will we seek rhythms and routines that will foster good mental and emotional and spiritual health? Embassy Church, I encourage us to take up this application in our lives. And if you'd like to be thinking and considering about this topic more, about depression and suicide and our identity in Jesus Christ, well, you are kind of in luck. The next two Saturdays will be on just that topic. I did not plan it that way, it just is what it is. So this coming Saturday at 9.30 a.m. in the downstairs or on Zoom or on the recording, you can hear one and then a following week of teachings on this very issue. I encourage you to attend, apply it to your lives, and help out, reach out, to help people who in this world have all kinds of guilt, all kinds of despair, and are in an especially difficult circumstance right now to deal with those feelings of guilt and despair. Reach out, help out, and give them the real hope that is in Jesus Christ. The first thing that we've seen in our text is that feeling sorry for yourself will not wash off the blood that you are guilty of. Secondly, Doing the right thing, even the right religious thing, does not wash off guilty blood. Look at verse 3 with me. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He, he had a regret, sorrow. And then he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He's doing the right thing. He's making things right. Restitution is happening. It's not just a, I feel sorry, and then I'm not going to do anything about it. He's actually doing the right religious thing. Then look at verse 4. It, it's even more intense. He confesses, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He not only admits his guilt and confesses his sin, he says, actually, Jesus is innocent. And what do the religious leaders of his day say? They say, we can't remove that guilt from you. In verse 4, they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. I think in other words, they're saying, you've come to us. The chief priests, the spiritual leaders, those that help with guilt and forgiveness of sin. That's what our job is. And they're saying, we can't deal with this. That's on you, buddy. I think if you understand the Old Testament and the laws at which that they're kind of working from, they're saying this is a high-handed sin according to our law, and blood sacrifices from animals cannot remove the guilt that you have for that sin. See to it yourself, they tell Judas. And so Judas does. He takes his life in a desperate attempt to pay for the blood of Jesus with his own blood. Now, whether or not that's the exact motivation of Judas, there's a lot of details and a lot of speculation as to why Judas did what he did, not only to betray Jesus, but then also to kill himself. 
But it doesn't seem as if that's the thing that Matthew really wants us to linger on. What I think we should notice is that Judas is trying to do the right thing. He's going to the spiritual and religious rulers, the guys that are supposed to help with guilt and blood, but they want to deny any involvement in the matter so they can say, we can't do anything about this. But of course, they could have. They're the ones that just condemned Jesus. Look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. Or look at verse 2. They bound him. They led him away. And they were delivering him over to Pilate, the governor. They could have done a retrial. They could have said, we've got now a new witness. We have new evidence. But this is not the course that they want to do. They instead know that if they put Judas on the stand, that will then indict them. In other words, the blood of Jesus would be on their hands as well. And that would admit their guilt, and in many ways, the text shows that they do. Look at verse 6. It says, the chief priests taking those pieces of silver after Judas threw them back at them, they say, is it not lawful to put them into the treasury, them being the silver pieces, since it is blood money? They're talking to one another and say, oh wow, this is blood money. We can't keep this. That would be breaking the rules. So what do they decide they're going to do with the blood money? Verses 7 and 8 tell us. So they took counsel and then they bought with that money the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, let me just try and summarize this as simple as possible. What they're doing is saying, huh, We can't put that in the treasury because that would be breaking the rules. So let's do something good with the money to help out the foreigners and strangers that are in Jerusalem on a regular basis because Jerusalem was a hot place to visit for pilgrimages and, and coming to worship. And in that very time and setting, they would have been coming for the Passover. So imagine you're on a Passover trip and you've got a very sickly great aunt or grandma, and she's with your family entourage, and then she doesn't make it home. She passes away while in Jerusalem. Well, what are you going to do? It's going to be days before you can get there, and then you're going to have this unclean body on your hands. You're going to need to find a burial place right there in Jerusalem. So they're thinking, we're going to help those people out, and we're going to buy a land, a plot of land, and we are going to give that land to all the foreigners when something like that happens. In many ways, it seems like, oh, we're coming off really nice and good and, and, and thoughtful about other people, And we're going to use the blood money instead of putting it in the treasury because that would break the rules to do something really nice. In other words, let me put it this way. It would be like a big name clothing company feeling really bad about the way they're using slave little children labor to make their clothes so they can make a big profit off of their clothes to sell them at higher prices in the United States. Oh, I wonder if that's ever happened. But in reality, they sell their clothes at amazing discounts and publicize their great moral character by saying, oh, in the United States with all the poverty and issues going on, we're going to give them almost for free to those who are poor in the United States to act like we really care about about the poor in the world. That would be a modern-day illustration of what's going. And then, implicitly, all the people that are buying from this company don't even realize it, but they're now contributing in what is this giant, awful blood money. That's what's going on in this text. Do you see how the blood money of Judas that passes on to the chief priests and the scribes, then gets passed on to people that don't even know it. I mean, how many times do you and I probably wear clothes, buy clothes, and do things that if we knew all that was going on to bring them into your house, we would probably shudder. 
And we're all contributing to this big mess that no one can escape the guilt of the blood of Jesus. These religious leaders don't care about breaking God's law when it helps them. But they do care when it wants to make them look good to the rest of the world. How convenient. How ironic. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody that's okay with breaking the rules when it helps them get what they want? But they're not okay with other people breaking the rules when it helps them get what they want. Why these rules? And why now do they seem to have some sort of moral conscience? Do you see Matthew's use of the story here? Judas, they don't really care about him. He goes and hangs himself. Next verse, these guys care about the rules. Hmm. I think it's because their guilt is being exposed by Judas. And they don't want the blood of Jesus on their hands. And what humans do time and time again when their guilt is being exposed is turn to rules and quote-unquote good deeds to make up for their sins. This is the way the world constantly wants to deal with this persistent, nagging guilt. Through more efforts and precise self-denial. We mentioned earlier the way that you could look at food as an example of the way that The world has changed at being all about, well, you just do what you want to do to like, no, this is the right way to do something. To eat correctly in the world today is a kind of self-denial that would make those Levites back in the Old Testament blush. If you want to appease Mother Earth, then we must embrace the most strict asceticism. It's a whole kind of religion in and of itself. To deal with the burdens of our affluence and wealth, in a world that's got disease and starvation and the demands of humanitarian merits, no government organization and no amount of fair trade coffee can ever make up for the amount of guilt that we are involved with. We have so much. We know so much. We're like Spider-Man. With this great power and knowledge, there is an amazing amount of responsibility. But no matter how responsible we are, you're going to constantly feel, there's more I could do. And even what I'm doing is not enough. Some of you might read about Martin Luther 500 years ago, who would, on his knees, ascend the staircases of the, the, the churches so that he could pay for his sins. But plenty of your neighbors practice that same kind of rigorous self-denial, not in a fear of God, but in the fear of unwanted pounds, unrefined flour, and the untold evils that our world has not even addressed. This is a sad state of affairs. It presumes that effort and the harder you work will win some moral good in the world. But we know this is not the case. Not only is the world's grace really just you earning grace in the world and favor from the eyes of those that are looking on, but in most cases there is no grace whatsoever. The best place for you to realize this is, of course, the internet. How many poor souls have used the wrong word on Facebook or linked the wrong post or retweet on Twitter? There is no fury like a blogger with too much time on his hands. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne has nothing 
on this never-ending shame that is on social media. Spend a few minutes on it and you'll know that it is offense after offense with a combination of humiliation and ridiculing and shaming, demanding for retribution, never offering forgiveness. The best that we can hope for is that people will just forget about it when the next big scandal happens. Social media is a specialized accusation faculty. Condemning with no pardon, the internet offers us no grace where we could be pardoned of our actual sins. There is no removing of our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. There is only the fearful and permanent marking of our iniquities that we may never stand in the presence of not only almighty God, but almighty Twitter. So the world's way to deal with guilt is try harder, get it right, deny yourself, do the right thing. But as we've seen, doing the right thing, even the religious right thing, does not wash off your guilty blood. Feeling sorry for yourself will not wash off the blood, doing the right thing, even a religious thing will not wash off the blood, so then what will? What can help us with our guilt? What can save us from despair? What can help those that are truly wanting to take their own lives be saved, literally saved from death? What can help us deal with the nagging sense that we are not doing enough and we're never doing enough or good enough the things that we are doing? And the answer that we gave at the beginning of this sermon was the blood of Jesus. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we can wash off the guilt from the blood of Jesus. Everyone in this story, as we said, feels the contamination and the blood and the guilt of it is inescapable. Judas wants to get rid of the money. The high priests and the Jewish leaders don't want that money because it's blood money. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent and so he tries to wash his hands of the blood. And as each person in chapter 27 try and scrape off the blood, it comes back and it's charged the entire generation of the Jewish people. And Matthew says in our text that these events are fulfilling a prophecy. So Matthew quotes Jeremiah in Matthew 27, verse 9. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is the most confusing passage that Matthew has ever quoted in the Old Testament in our study so far. Why do I say that? Because he says that Jeremiah is the prophet for whom said, and then there's the quote, and then you go and you read all of Jeremiah and you're like, where's that? It's nowhere to be found. And then if you read all of the Old Testament, you're like, well, what's the closest that this might be? You realize that it's very, very similar to Zechariah chapter 11. And you're like, so wait, did, was this a mistake? Has the Bible got errors in it where he like thinks he's saying Jeremiah? And that's who said it, but really it was Zechariah. What in the world is going on? And when we look back at the source in Zechariah and we think about Zechariah's context, and then we look at the source of Matthew and then Jeremiah and all of these things put together, we do see that the Jeremiah text has 30 pieces of silver, throwing that silver into a temple, and then the language of potter. So that's what I mean. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 seems to be what he's talking about. But 
why then does he say Jeremiah quoted this when the most clear connection is with Zechariah? And this, like I said, is confusing, and I could probably spend the next hour explaining all of the moves that are being made. So you have a choice to make. You can either think that Matthew knows what he's doing, and he is going to quote from Zechariah in part, but also add some of Jeremiah, because there's enough evidence that he is referencing three different texts in Jeremiah, and he thinks that you would kind of get all of that, or he's fallible and he made a mistake. Those are really the kind of the two options out there. If you know me, you know which option I land on because we've been talking about this repeatedly through Matthew's gospel. This guy is not only a really and smart, intelligent disciple from Jesus himself who is trained how to read the Old Testament in light of what happened in Jesus' day, but he's inspired by the very spirit of God. And if you think that the Bible is just kind of like simple and on the surface, then you have misunderstood what kind of book we're dealing with. These guys, as I have mentioned, are like spiritual ninja warriors. They are doing all kinds of gymnastics at times that kind of assume a high level of reading. And if you don't really know your Old Testament very well, you're going to struggle at the real depth of the Bible. And I've said that for at least three years as we worked through Matthew's gospel. So let's just get, what's the point, Phil? Here's the point. The prophecies from both Jeremiah and Zechariah, well, both of them are about breaking a covenant, shattering Israel, and because of this hostility between Yahweh and Israel, there is the shedding of innocent blood. The Zechariah prophecy shows that the money thrown into the temple treasury, the 30 pieces of silver, to the potter is a sign that Israel and Judah is going to be shattered. Israel is then going to fight with Israel. In other words, people who are Jewish are going to cause the bloodshed of innocent Jewish people. Can you think of any kind of context in the life of Jesus where a Jewish group of people want to kill another Jewish person who doesn't deserve it? That's Zechariah in a nutshell. Then the Jeremiah prophecy is not about shepherds and silver, but about the potter and the innocent blood, and that's where that language comes in. Jeremiah is warning Israel that they will be shattered like a clay pot because they have been worshiping false gods and idols, and they too have been shedding innocent blood. More specifically, in the context of Jeremiah, there is a field. This is where the burial plot of the field comes in. There's a field where they were making uh, not animal sacrifices, but human sacrifices in a valley called Tophet. And there, they too were shedding innocent blood. Jeremiah, in his prophecies, dramatizes this doom by taking a clay pot and shattering it. Now, the clay pot represents the nation of Israel. Why is it a clay pot? Because like Adam was made from the dust, Israel is represented by being made from clay or the ground or the dust, formed as a new kind of Adam. And there, in Jesus' day, the Jews are just like the people in Jeremiah's day. They are plotting against the ultimate Adam figure, the ultimate representative of Israel. Jews fighting against Jews, crushing innocent blood, or doing a human sacrifice. All of these contexts come together, and because of this, they will be shattered. They are the ones destroying the temple, not the building of the temple, but the temple that is Jesus's body. And because of that, they will be destroyed. They are offering over the firstborn, The firstborn not of their family, but the firstborn of God. And they will then be slaughtered. That's what's coming together when Matthew quotes 
this combination blender mix of Jeremiah and Zechariah. Did you guys catch all that? Well, that's why we record these sermons. You can listen to it again later. These Old Testament passages, especially the Zechariah one, gives us, I think, a very helpful image for us as we think about the blood of Jesus. Who is it that will soon suffer and die on the cross? The answer is Jesus, but that's obvious. But not just any person. Jesus, the Son of God, God of very God, as the old Nicene Creed says. The ultimate solution then to the shepherd problem of Zechariah is for Yahweh himself to become that shepherd that dies with innocent blood. He's the shepherd that's valued at 30 shekels, which is a slap in the face if you read the context of Zechariah. He's the shepherd who is struck. He is the shepherd who is pierced. Yahweh himself then becomes the very one that Zechariah was talking about. God's blood is being shed, the most innocent of all innocent blood. And this leads to two results. Matthew tells us this story and all of this in this context so that you could highlight the similarities and differences between Peter and Judas. Peter betrayed Jesus. His betrayal was predicted by Jesus. Peter brought down curses. But Peter turned not to the priests of Israel, but he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, just like Jesus said on that Lord's Supper night. Peter was restored. But Judas, he betrayed Jesus. He had that betrayal be predicted by Jesus. He brought down the kind of curse on himself by doing a high-handed sin that the regular animal sacrifices could not deal with. And instead of turning to Jesus, to God, the God-man in flesh, he turned to the religious leaders and was led to despair and killed himself. Jesus' blood is inescapable. This means that everyone in the story is going to come under the blood of Jesus one way or another, which means you and me, as you listen to this story, it's time for you to say, is the blood of Jesus on my hands? One way or another, the claims of the Bible is, it is. And you too will be charged against those, with those who conspired to kill Jesus, and either you will be found guilty of murder for your contribution of the blood that continues to pass on for generation to generation, or it will become the blood of the new covenant, the blood that sheds forgiveness of sins for everyone who would come to Jesus Christ and find that his blood can wash away the guilt of the blood of Jesus. Either way, blood will be on you and your children. Will it be the blood of condemnation or will it be the blood of forgiveness? If you try on your own effort to remove it, throw it away, wash it off, you are doomed, whether in this life or the life to come. But those who receive Jesus' blood will be given washed white robes in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, Jesus is closing out all of human history the human history that began with the blood of Abel, his righteous blood that's being charged to Jerusalem, the blood that cried out for vengeance against Jerusalem, and everyone that would receive Christ and his blood 
will now know that his blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood, a word of forgiveness and pardon. So what will you have? I offer and suggest and urge, demand, do whatever I can to plead with you. Take the blood of Jesus. Let's do that now as we take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to come now in the name of your son Jesus and by the merits of his blood, ask for your spirit to wash us clean of the guilt that we all have nagging in our hearts. We want to pray that our consciences would be cleansed, that our minds would be renewed, and that our lives would be transformed by the life-changing and transforming power of the blood of Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.